0: podcast episode 17. Uh, This time we've got Ben Westhoff on the line here. Uh, Thanks for coming on the show, Ben.
1: Thanks for having me. I'm very psyched to be here.
0: For a little uh, background for the audience, uh, Ben is an award-winning investigative journalist who's recently written a book called Fentanyl, Inc. It was uh, released in the U.S. early September by Grove Atlantic, and we're going to be focusing on that as the subject of discussion today. Um, but before we get started, I, I just want to start out with a, a brief note. Um, there's a certain type of, of journalist book uh, that has been coming out in the last five, ten years or so. That's often uh, ghost-written in some content warehouse by an underemployed writer who basically binges a bunch of Adderall and churns out the book in a week or even less than a week, based purely on easily available. Uh, online news sources and almost zero real research, and I can confidently say that this book isn't that at all. Um, it's clear that an enormous amount of research and extensive interviews and on-the-ground reporting went into it, which in twenty nineteen is is something I, I really do appreciate. Uh, so I recommend, you know, for for anyone listening, go get the book. It's it's fantastic, and uh, I hope you guys enjoy this interview. Uh, so with that that brief note. Let's let's get started on the book. Um, basically, the way I've structured the podcast this time is that while I've read the book, uh, I made sure Wolf did not so that he can yeah, function as, in as the sort of stand yeah. in uh, for, for an audience also f- unfamiliar with the book. So Ben, just to start, why don't you give us a, an overview of the structure of the book and, and your motivations for, for writing it, and then we can start discussing uh, various points as, as they come up.
1: Well, thanks for that, Jonah. I really appreciate it. Um, yeah, the book, it's about fentanyl, you know, the history of fentanyl, how we got to this point, how we got to be at a point where fentanyl is killing more Americans annually than any drug in history. You know, we hear a lot about the opioid epidemic, and but I think people's eyes tend to gloss over now because we're we're so deep in it.
2: Well, it, it's not just like more than any other drug. I, one of the claims in the introduction was, you know, more Americans under 55 than anything else, you know, including guns, cars, uh, murder, etc.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's this unprecedented crisis. And, um, you know, no one had ever really done a deep dive on it. And um, my timing was pretty fortuitous because I started this project about four years ago and I was initially focused on party drugs, rave drugs. Right. I was a um, music editor at LA Weekly and had written two previous books about hip-hop. And so I was covering the rave scene, and I, it seemed like every single rave, someone died. And wow. I had been, you know, raving. I used to live in San Francisco, and I was in kind of the first wave of the rave scene, and people took plenty of ecstasy then. Yeah. But, but, you know, I never heard about anyone dying. Um, so I found out that there was almost no pure ecstasy on the scene anymore When I started reporting this story four years ago It was almost all adulterated There was almost you know no MDMA or very little MDMA in these drugs And so I wanted to find out what were these new adulterants And it turned out there was this whole new crop of synthetic chemicals All of them made in China And fentanyl was the most dangerous of them all.
2: Yeah, actually, that, that reminds me, um, sort of one of my personal connections to this story, which which makes me interested in it, is um, uh, we, a family friend died of a fentanyl overdose. Uh, I think it was fentanyl a couple of years ago um, as a result of basically adulterated ecstasy. So yeah, it's definitely a real thing. It's, it's all over the place and a lot of people are getting hit by it. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, drug overdoses right now, I think this
0: statistic is about 70,000 uh, lives a year, something like this. Um, yeah, and, and it's, it's like so widespread, you like, you hear about people you know. I've, I, yeah, I've had a friend as as well, you know, overdose because he took something that he had, he really had no idea what it was. I mean, he thought he knew what it was, but it, it clearly was not that thing. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, I, I think one interesting thing, too, about the statistic of, of say, 70,000 lives a year, that doesn't quite capture um, how bad the addiction problem is, I think, because right, as That's you, just the people who die. That's just the people who, who, who die. As you mentioned in the book, Narcan is, is really frequently used uh, to bring people back who are just on the, 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 the brink of death, who are crossing over, and then they get brought back, sometimes 15 times. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Narcan is this amazing, uh, basically miracle drug that brings people back from the dead. But the the problem with with fentanyl, you know, it's 50 times stronger than heroin. And, you know, you you hear about it often because people didn't mean to take it. They didn't even know they were taking it. Right. So it's cut into heroin because it's so much more powerful and so much cheaper It's uh, a way for drug dealers to save money. But now it's also being cut into meth, into cocaine, and it's even cut into fake prescription pills. So the singer Prince, Tom Petty, and the rapper Mac Miller all died because they took pills that they thought were like legitimate opioid pain pills, but they were actually cut with fentanyl.
0: Oh man! And about I think about two milligrams will will kill you. And I've even heard stories of law enforcement uh, doing drug raids, and they get a little bit of fentanyl on themselves, so just a little bit, even uh, skin exposure, and they start feeling the effects right away. Basically.
1: Yeah, there is some misinformation about there, and and law enforcement is spending millions to like try to counter this problem. You can't actually get it from just touching it. A lot of oh, people think. But you can just, you know, like that scene in uh, what is that uh, Annie Hall, where someone's passing around the cocaine and Woody Allen sneezes into it. Um, if you did the same thing with fentanyl in the air, you could definitely be poisoned by that. Huh.
2: Okay. Interesting. Anyways, so, yeah. So I'm curious to to continue the story of how you got into this, um, and yeah, just where the book came from, basically.
1: Well, the book was initially going to be about ecstasy, and then when I found out there was like no real ecstasy hardly out there anymore, I was going to write about these ecstasy substitutes. But, you know, and and then they're made in China. There's these different things called synthetic cathinones, all these obscure drugs that were being packaged as ecstasy. But then I heard about fentanyl, and this I still remember the first time I heard the word. It was like three and a half years ago, and someone told me, Well, this is I mean, this is worse than all those other ones combined. And um, you know, it wasn't just myself who kind of wasn't aware of it or underestimated the problem because the DEA in their 2015 report said that fentanyl basically wasn't a problem and it wasn't going to be a problem because it was too strong people didn't want it and you know basically nothing to see here and then by 2016 yeah that was 2015 and then one year later it was already killing more americans than any other drug in history
0: that's 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 unbelievable um so this gets into the the term you mentioned nps which is an acronym that stands for novel psychoactive substance and and so fentanyl is is one part of it but then there's you know the issue of, of ecstasy too uh and, and all these other drugs which in 2019 uh it's so much easier if you're mass producing them in, in places like China or Mexico uh you know it's it's easier for these and and cheaper for these drugs not to actually be these drugs and not only is it cheaper in many cases it's it's uh easier to skirt regulations because even now at least officially China's starting to crack down on on uh, nps production
1: right so novel psychoactive substances nps basically refers to any drug you haven't heard of you know or you haven't heard of until recent recently these are non-traditional drugs and so you know typical traditional drugs like cocaine heroin marijuana these are all natural they come from natural plants they're almost all trafficked by mexico you know, or places like Colombia, Afghanistan, you know, they're growing the, the opium poppies, they're distributing mm-hmm. them into the US. But these NPS, since they're all synthetic and all made in a lab, they almost all come from China. Right. And so China was not a place I knew of as a big drug producer. But in the past few years, the landscape is completely shifting. And because... Fentanyl is so much cheaper and so much more potent. The Mexican cartels are starting to import fentanyl and fentanyl ingredients from China, and they're sort of rapidly switching over from traditional drugs like heroin to fentanyl as fast as they can.
0: That's that's partly because a lot of heroin addicts, at this point, uh, which was mentioned in the book again, they. Often take heroin just to ma- maintain uh, not not even a high, but just tolerance level. They're like they've reached tolerance levels, and now they need a continued supply of of heroin to avoid uh, to avoid withdrawal. Sick, yeah, to avoid withdrawal. But fentanyl is the thing, even in very small amounts, that allows them to get that high again.
1: That's right. Yeah, fentanyl is an opioid. You know, just like morphine and and even codeine oxycontin they all all of these drugs affect the central nervous system in the same way so if you if you're addicted to opioids then fentanyl is going to satisfy those same cravings but since fentanyl is so much stronger it will um, not just get people off of their withdrawal symptoms it will get them high again and so actually in places like san francisco and St. Louis, where I'm from, those are two of the rare places where fentanyl is being sold on the streets as fentanyl. People hmm. ask for it by name, whereas wow. in most part of the countries, it's just cut into other drugs, and people don't even want it. That's a
0: good place to start about uh, on on some of the the intro. So, it, you talk about Operation Denial, which was you know a U.S. investigation that's still ongoing, but which so far has. Has almost completely wound up one particular fentanyl supply chain uh, that resulted in some deaths. But there's an exception there. The exception is a man at the very top of the supply chain named Jian Zhang, who's located in China. And the you know the fact is is that while he was indicted and, and sanctioned in the U.S., China simply will not hand him over, and and he hasn't been prosecuted domestically. So that's kind of an an interesting opening of the the current relationship between China and the U.S. on the subject.
1: Right. There was this 18-year-old recent high school graduate named Bailey Henke, who came from Grand Forks, North Dakota, and he overdosed and died on some fentanyl that a friend bought on the dark web, Mm -hmm. and he became sort of this celebrity fentanyl death. I mean, obviously, it's been hundreds of thousands of people. But for some reason, this 18-year-old kid became this huge focus in the media. And it inspired the biggest fentanyl investigation that's ever happened, including all these officials from different countries. And they they tracked down the dark web supplier who provided the drugs, who was from Portland. And then the guy that this Portland guy got the drugs from was actually a Canadian prisoner who had had access to the dark web for some reason and was selling fentanyl on the dark web from his prison cell, oh and my God. you know only in Canada, I guess. But he was, uh, he was probably
0: learning to code or something.
1: Yeah, yeah, I have no, I have no idea. Um, but the you know those guys were arrested. They they got people. They got dozens of people at every step of the supply chain, but. The man who was actually making the fentanyl in China, whom you mentioned, um, he has not been able, you know, he still walks free because, of course, China doesn't want to hand him over to the U.S. And they just basically say that they haven't found any crime that he's committed in the U.S. is basically meddling in their in their affairs.
0: So we can we can get to talking more about about China uh, a little bit later, but let's exhaust uh, first the discussion of of recreational drugs and and the, the these adulterants or uh, research chemicals. Or when, one interesting thing is just the the regulatory aspect of it, which is that for every particular chemical that you schedule, there's always the you know this is just you know organic chemistry, right? It's it's so easy to just tweak these things slightly so that they technically become. Other substances, although no one really knows what happens when you take these substances, because it's not like these chemists, uh, you know, in the interests of all our safety, have have you know done extensive randomized controlled trials t- to see what the effects of these new substances are. They they haven't done that at all, and they don't really care to. All they care about is is skirting the legal technicalities so they can continue production.
1: Right so in the 80s they talked a lot about designer drugs and that's basically what these are now we call them nps novel psychoactive substances but the idea is that these are synthetic chemicals and whenever the government bans one of them like fentanyl all the chemists have to do is tweak the chemical structures and now they have something that it reacts you know it has the same effects in the body more or less as say fentanyl but it's now legal
2: so uh, just just to like clarify the theory on how this stuff works is it there's there's a receptors for a few different like neurotransmitters or something and then these things mimic those is that how it works or is it different for all of them or like what's what's the general kind of uh mechanism by which these things are actually working
1: oh man you're gonna stump me i mean they're they're all basically um using the same receptors in the brain the i guess the opioid receptor is referred to as the mu receptor um okay but as for how these chemicals are all different exactly i don't know and i don't think even the the scientists who are studying them or creating them know right i mean um and yeah and and like like Jonas said um there are no clinical trials on these at all and so basically what you have is everyone who's buying these drugs are basically human guinea pigs.
2: Right. Yeah, so so let's like let's talk more about that whole drug scene. Like who who is getting into this stuff? Why are they getting into it? What does the whole scene look like of people trying these novel substances? Or is it people who think they're buying ecstasy and they haven't like caught up to, to how things are going? Or like I, I'm just curious for like an overall Uh, view of the scene that that is driving this sort of uh, sociologically from the user's perspective
1: there are basically two different channels under which this is happening and the first is sort of traditional drug dealing channels so starting with the mexican cartels they send the fentanyl up through Mm -hmm. the border It's distributed by the same regional distributors who are distributing heroin and cocaine and meth and all that. And then the users buy it on the street. So so that part is basically the same as it's always been. The -hmm. other channel, though, is through the Internet and the dark web. And so the people who are buying on the dark web tend to be a whole different sort of socioeconomic group. Right. These are people obviously with the savvy The savvy to get on the dark web and a lot of them are sort of you might call them drug nerds you know Uh they're they go on these discussion forums on the internet and they they're specifically after these brand new chemicals that haven't been scheduled yet that aren't illegal yet and so they they know you know maybe they're from belgium and they know all the the details about belgian drug law or you know there's huge um communities in Russia where people are into these new NPS drugs and in the US too of course and so um, China is sort of the the company the country that's making the most of them they're also made in other countries but in China you have huge labs that are dedicated specifically to staying on top of the newest drugs so they have a window of opportunity where, the drug is has become popularized on the internet, but it hasn't been banned yet. And so sometimes that window is only a year, sometimes even six months. But these Chinese companies will will start manufacturing them, synthesizing them in bulk, and people consumers buy them over the dark web. Um, sometimes from these these marketplaces that are just like Amazon, you know the right yeah. They have they have user ratings, so so people can know if their supplier is is going to rip them off or not, and um, it's been going on like this for years now. One thing I found
0: interesting is that um, they actually these these Chinese chemists often depend on a lot of the publicly available academic research done by chemists in in Western countries, and this is something they they actually point to uh, as a sort of um, you know, you're also contributing to this problem. And then there, there, there's the whole question about uh, whether this academic research should be made public at all.
1: Right. I was surprised to hear that a lot of these new, a lot of these new drugs were actually not dreamed up, little chemists, you know, trying to poison humanity. But a lot of them come from the scientific literature, like right. you said. So so back in the pre-internet days, when a, a medical scientist worked on a new drug, trying to develop a new medicine to patent. Um, Those papers were sort of just kept in dusty filing cabinets or in a research library at a university. And so no one ever saw them. But in the Internet age, all of these research papers began to go online. And so now people who are interested in making drugs, new drugs, started targeting specific scientists who they, know, they knew worked in the field of, say, psychedelics or opioids, and they began combing through all their research papers to find out specific chemical formulas and um, then began making those drugs themselves to, to be used recreationally. I, I'm curious to get
2: back to like the, the two big channels you mentioned. So there's the, the sort of street drugs, and then there's the drug nerd internet channel. Um, what's the relative size of those two things? Like, you know, are are the drug nerds actually sort of, is that a large enough scene that it's accounting for a significant fraction of the overall death rate? Or is it just somehow playing like a popularizing role or like, I'm, I'm curious the sort of structure by which you go from like people on the dark web, which is obviously must be a rather small amount of people. To sort of large numbers of people actually using this stuff.
1: Yeah, by far the greatest amount of people being killed are the people who are engaging in street dealing, street buying. They uh, through the traditional channels. The the drug nerds themselves. I I don't know how sizable it is. Um, I it's it's definitely if you know you go on some of these forums, there's huge amounts of people in in sites like BlueLight.org, Arrowhead right. and Um, But these tend to be a lot sort of more informed users and a lot of times Uh they're not after these super strong synthetic opioids like fentanyl. A lot of them are specifically after psychedelics and psychedelics with some exception tend to be much safer. And so these people are, um, you know, looking for a very specific experience and often they'll consult other people's reviews you know, other people's testimonials before they'll buy something themselves. Although although you can't forget about Psychonauts.
0: So uh, that brings us to, to of course, LSD. And, and that's a, a large topic in the book as well, kind of the history of of LSD and its production and, 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 and uh, you know, certain groups and certain individuals that have uh, been responsible for their distribution in the U.S. I'd, I'd be interested if you could talk about that a little bit.
1: Well, LSD, um, you know, it's it's got a really bad rap in the popular culture following Timothy Leary's exploits and sort of the, right. the summer of love stuff. And it became tied up with the hippie generation. And um, uh, a lot of the straight people, uh, you know, really tried to cast it out of society. But it has its roots as a drug that was used in Psychotherapy was was really thought of as a potential uh, drug for for medical use that could help people overcome all sorts of mental blocks and addictions. And, you know, people really thought the sky was the limit as far as what LSD could potentially do. Um, And, you know, LSD is is something of a a wonder drug. I mean, um, no one has ever died from an LSD overdose. You know, you've heard these stories. A lot of them are apocryphal about someone taking LSD and thinking they were a bird and jumping, you know, off a roof. But, but just from the drug itself, you know, there's stories right, about. speaking. There's stories about how this one group of people, I think it was in San Francisco, um, came across some powdered coca- uh, powdered LSD that they thought was cocaine, and they sniffed it. And they got like, you know, hundreds and hundreds of doses all at once. And uh none of them actually died. They they all lived to tell the tale. And so you basically can't overdose on L I mean, they were messed up, and so don't go, don't try this at home. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. But you know, um LSD is like I said, you know, no one has ever overdosed and died. And so in this new era of all these designer drugs, these new NPS, there have been other types of psychedelics developed which are dangerous and right. so in the book i tell the story of um, this huge lsd bust in kansas and it's a pretty colorful story involving this this stripper who was picked up at her strip club by this uh this tall imposing guy who turned out to be an lsd chemist and he operated out of a abandoned missile silo somewhere in the middle of kansas And they had what turned out to be, you know, the DEA called the biggest LSD operation in the country, if not the world. And um, one of the LSD chemists got paranoid, turned in the other one, and the, the lab was busted. And so the LSD supply, this was in the year 2000, and the years that followed, the LSD supply, like, almost shriveled up. And so in the ensuing years, um, a new psychedelic, which was stolen from the chemical literature, was popularized. And this new psychedelic was called N-bombs. There are these different variations called N-bombs. It's a very cringeworthy name. But the the problem with these N-bombs is that um, they did kill people and do. And so it's a lot of people took the lesson here that, you know, if you're going to crack down and try to eliminate one drug, a new, worse one is likely going to take its place.
0: So what does LSD production in the United States currently look like? Is if, if for if you're buying it on the dark web, if you're buying it off the street, uh, are you getting the actual thing? Or are you getting some uh, some sort of research chemical or or NPS?
1: I would certainly not trust that you're getting the right thing. Right. Because a lot of this stuff is sold as acid, you know, and and acid could mean anything, really. So, you know, I write about a kid from the suburbs of Dallas. He and his brothers wanted to have a going away party for one of the brothers. And, you know, they wanted to do LSD. They did all this research on LSD, determined that it was pretty safe. And then they, they bought what they thought was LSD, but it was this, this new bad drug. So I, um, I certainly wouldn't trust it, trust it. The good news is there are all sorts of drug checking kits available, and I'm sure we'll talk more about those. But these are made by companies like the bunk police, and they, it can tell you to a high degree of certainty if what you have is what you think you have. So they're mm-hmm. very sophisticated tests well of course, one of the
0: the you know the difficulties discussed in those drug kits is that you kind of have to this isn't quite the right term, but you have to norm them, which is to say uh like you actually need you know the drugs themselves uh and it, sometimes it's difficult legally to get your hands on those in order to to make the kit work in the first place.
1: yeah, I went all the way to Slovenia. With this group the bunk police to where they were developing their new drug checking kits because there are so many of these new drugs you know like a hundred a year or more wow. they like you said they have to track down samples of these drugs before they can create a, a checking kit that will identify them and so they went to slovenia because he you know the the leader of the bunk police named adam Octor, was very worried that he was gonna be arrested for doing his work here.
0: Yeah, I think uh, some of these types are, you know, they've they've been in the scene for some time, sometimes since the 90s or earlier, and now with these NPS going around, they're, as, as you talk about later in the book, they're willing to, in a sense, uh, take great risks legally um, to, to make sure that this sort of information and awareness gets out. Or to themselves start nonprofits or other projects to whether it's you know safe injection sites or uh, test kits. Uh, you know the the example you mentioned is in Spain is also instructive.
1: Well, you know, not surprisingly, drug law in the U.S. is pretty much cuckoo. Um, you know, when it comes to these drug checking kits, this is they're also super valuable in the fight against fentanyl because, like we've said. Most people don't want fentanyl and they don't even know it's in their drugs. So they right. have something called fentanyl testing strips, which costs like a dollar and can immediately tell you if you've got fentanyl or if it's, if it's, you know, the drug that you actually think you have. But these fentanyl testing strips and these other drug checking kits are actually illegal in places like Pennsylvania. And you're not allowed to use them at raves. You're not allowed to sell them at big concerts because of this sort of obscure law known as the Rave Act, which was co-sponsored by Joe Biden, which basically says that if a promoter of a rave or a concert allows drug checking, that's tantamount to admitting that they know people are using drugs at their event. And so, you know, it scares off the promoters right. from allowing this this drug checking.
0: Yeah, I'm sure we would all be better off if we just lied to ourselves that there weren't any drug usage going
2: on at these events.
1: Yeah, and that's basically what what happens now.
2: Yeah, so th- this brings us actually to, like, the thing from the law enforcement's perspective. So you, you said uh, in the book you talked to, you know, DEA agents and police and so on um i'm curious what this looks like from their perspective like how what's what's holding them back what's the kind of structure of their operations um just i yeah i'm curious to hear that perspective
1: well you know i everyone i talk to in law enforcement is very well meaning and a lot of people told me privately that the you know they were just doing what they could with the laws that are on the books but right. part of the part of the problem is that um it, it's just not moving fast enough to keep up with all these new drugs you know yeah, the, exactly the way these new synthetic drugs are being sold the way they're being marketed the way they're being used everything is changing and yet these uh these crackdowns are sort of operating under the same old war on drugs mentality and so Um, you know, you're starting to hear about police officers getting dark web training and things like that, but, and, and there is a move towards criminal justice reform. I mean, I was, I was surprised that Trump signed criminal justice reform last year. The only problem is that it specifically excludes fentanyl offenses. And so we have a situation where, you know, low level fentanyl users and dealers are being locked up all the time still, and the recidivism rate is extremely
0: high. So that brings me to another question, which is pretty broad, but, you know, worth thinking about, which is that every drug crisis eventually comes to an end one way or another. So how does the fentanyl crisis end? What does that even look like?
1: I don't know. I mean, we're, I feel like we're in still in early stages of it. Yeah. You know, um, the opioid pill death rate is falling and the heroin death rate is falling in the u.s but the fentanyl death rate is still rising and there's all this concern that there's a bunch of untapped markets which are still out there so some some cities for example are big like pill towns so the the opioid abuse in places like west virginia is focused on pills And so, you know, despite the fact that Prince and and others have died from tainted pills, there's still a huge untapped market there. And if drug dealers realize that it's so much more profitable to to make more of these adulterated pills, you know, it's so easy to buy these pill pressing machines. You could buy them on Amazon, I believe, until not that long ago. And um, you you can you print up like ten I don't know like thousands of these pills an hour, and you can stamp them so they look exactly like a
0: a regular opioid. So, and an interesting thing now I, I think worth talking about is closer to the end of the book you start talking about ways in which uh, we can reduce NPS or, or drug usage or at least make it safer for users. Uh, I'd, I'd like to get into that a little bit, um, especially because as as you note. Know, it doesn't look like the fentanyl crisis is going to end anytime soon.
1: In Barcelona, I went to one of these facilities you mentioned. They're called a supervised injection facility. And what these are, it's a place where people can legally use drugs. They can shoot up heroin or fentanyl. They can smoke crack. They can do anything they want. But there are doctors and nurses on site. There are clean needles. There's access to opioid blockers and other opioids that are like methadone that are designed to wean people off. And these facilities have been a huge boon to public safety in Spain by all accounts. Um, you know, they used to have this big problem with syringes and parks and all over the city. But now, um, you know, they have these lots of these supervised injection facilities and no one has ever died at one. There's a lot of them in Canada as well, all over Europe. But in the U.S., they're illegal. And um, a lot of different cities like uh, Philadelphia and Denver and Seattle, lots of other cities have tried to to bring these facilities in. But the federal government has made it clear that they're
0: going to block them one way of of combating this was a, a bit suggested suggested in in the book at least historically which is that in the 1950s uh the Ch- chinese communist party uh in using a very <laughs> authoritarian measures essentially eradicated drug usage but by the time the 1980s rolled around and, and china started opening up for for trade again that's when drug use started to in, increase again. Although there are a couple things here uh, that, that, I guess, if you believe the official statistics in China, would be uh, responsible for the fact that they tend to do to to use fewer fewer drugs, which is Chinese culture and um, a strong state response, at least domestically. Um, so I'm I'm curious how you would uh, think about balancing. Um, harsher law enforcement measures with sort of like safe injection site measures, since uh, at least as far as the safe injection sites are concerned, it's still, you know, a very heated debate. I'm not even sure actually where I fall on that issue. I I haven't been able to make up my mind on it.
1: Well, you know, it's hard to believe the official Chinese statistics or their storyline or whatever. And maybe another example would be Singapore where they have, you know, harsh penalties against drugs and perhaps not as big a problem. Um, You know, I'm I'm not in favor of uh, sort of strong, harsh penalties against people for drug use, um, just Mm -hmm. as a sort of philosophical belief. But I'm also very unconvinced that it does anything to stop the problem. I mean that's what the war on drugs has been for, you know, the last 50 years, almost since Nixon. And we haven't made a dent in it. You know, we spent billions and billions and billions of dollars. And there are more people now using drugs, much less dying of drugs than there were before we started the war on drugs. So um, it's hard to convince me that there's much going on there.
2: Yeah, so, so we have like, I guess there's sort of a ground level enforcement against users and then you have enforcement against traffickers and, and the, the sort of people cooking this stuff up. Uh, and then I guess you can separate the kind of like relatively harmless drugs like LSD from the more harmful stuff like fentanyl. Um, and like, so it seems to me that we're kind of just not, agile enough to to tackle the problem like you know like you say it's we're using a paradigm that was basically cooked up in the 70s uh and and the thing has not like sort of on the enforcement or or control angle innovated much since then
1: yeah when it comes to the international attempts to control the supply we -hmm. have stuff like the DEA assisted killing of Pablo Escobar Right. You know, and and since then, the rate of cocaine coming out of Colombia is higher than it's ever been, you know, and El Chapo was arrested and tried. But the drug flow from Mexico is certainly not being slowed by any capacity. So now the, you know, Trump is talking a lot about China and um, he's using the trade war in part to try to get China to control its industry of exporting fentanyl here right and my concern is you know i I went in i went undercover and went to these chinese drug labs i i found out all sorts of revelations about how the chinese government is not just failing to tamp down this industry failing to control this industry but the chinese government is actually subsidizing the production and export of fentanyl through, through the tax code and all this crazy stuff so believe me i know i know better than anybody that China is a really bad actor
2: in this realm. So so you think they like, how deliberate is it from their their perspective? Like, is it just like sort of motivated negligence? It's like, oh yeah, some of our companies are hurting these Americans, or is it like there's sort of like tacit acceptance of, or, or support for the idea? What, what do the actual drug companies think they're doing? What does the government think they're doing? I'm, I'm curious, like, yeah, what is it? Well, what are they I don't think over there?
1: I don't think it came from any sort of conspiracy. I think it came out of basically this idea that China wanted to grow its chemical exports. Right. So China has the biggest pharmaceutical industry in the world, the biggest chemical industry, but it's not as profitable as the U.S. is, and that's because it makes all these sort of generics and um, you know low-level pharmaceuticals. So there's this this nationwide Chinese plan was to kind of move the exports up the value chain as it's called. And yeah. so they wanted to promote promote the export of expensive brand name pharmaceuticals, things like that. And so they began offering these value added tax rebates, they're called VAT rebates for exports. It's basically like a a tax a tax rebate. And so I, I, you know, I went down the rabbit hole checking all these value added tax rebates and it turns out they give they give one for fentanyl. And not only that, they give they give these rebates for all these obscure analogs of fentanyl, which have never been used as medicine, which are only, you know, killing people. There's no reason for them to, to be hmm. sold at all. And so I I don't believe that, you know, this was sort of a conspiracy. I think they were trying to grow this industry and didn't realize what kind of side effects this would have um now at the same time but of course now they
2: realize like like they must they must understand yeah, what they, they're doing
1: they, they must now yeah um you know and and i i've been talking with a lot of uh different branches of government of the u.s government and this this stuff in my book is so new it just came out a few weeks ago that people haven't really had too much time to respond but the, the one indication from the U.S. government is that China is trying to act in good faith about this. Um, the, the other thing to keep in mind is that China is not one thing, you know, right. yeah, like there are, are so many levels of bureaucracy and government that a lot of times I think it's the more provincial officials who are kind of turning a blind eye because they want their province or their city to generate revenue and employ people. And so they might notice this and just look the other way, whereas the more top-level government officials maybe are genuinely trying to to change
0: this. So you have basically about three types of of Chinese chemical companies. Number one, uh, companies that manufacture drugs that are illegal, not only in Western countries, but China too. Uh, The second type is... Is companies that that manufacture produce NPS drugs that are illegal in the West but not in China and then of course uh, they do these pre the third is is those who produce uh, chemical precursors for for drugs and, and steroids and one sort of challenge here is that you know this isn't this isn't the 1970s or 80s and China's not within our hemisphere and uh, power-wise, China's a lot closer to a, a, a balance with the U.S. than countries in Latin America. Uh, we used to work with them quite closely to uh, fight cartels, uh, fight production, distribution. It was difficult enough then, um, and it's, it's even more so now because the scene in China is so much more professional. It's so much more commercial and competitive. It's, it's way less violent. And the U.S. has way less control and visibility there.
1: Yeah, 100 percent. You know, China um, doesn't want to be told what to do by the U.S. And so that's why they're not extraditing these people right. that the U.S. Is, is, wants to go after. At the same time, they don't want to be seen as the, the drug pusher to the world. And so they do this thing where they sometimes talk, talk tough but then they will sort of quietly agree to do some things we've asked them. But the, the craziest thing was when I, I visited um, this company based in the Chinese city of Wuhan, which is in central mm-hmm. China, it's, it's a huge city uh, chemical manufacturing base. And I wanted to visit this company because I determined they were selling more fentanyl precursors than any other company in the world. And so these are like the the most important chemicals to make fentanyl. They sell them to the Mexican cartels. I talked to the salespeople on Skype pretending to be a buyer. They basically admitted that Mexico was their number one client. And, um, And I visited and I was expecting sort of a shady underground operation, but it was based out of this hotel. Their address was on the internet. They invited customers to come. I went, and there were these vast sales floors of young, recent college graduates who were sitting at cubicles. They were selling these, these fentanyl drugs uh, just online using Skype, using social media. It um, you know all of these. There were hundreds of employees there, and the CEO told me they had 700 employees total and the ones at this this facility i went to they lived lived there it was it it was operating out of an old hotel and so they got free room and board they got like a good health plan free cell phone it was basically just seen as a good job to to take right out of college
2: Mm -hmm.
0: and and it was interesting to see with your interviews with them that that they a lot of them have the same sort of excuses or justifications that are very common to anyone who's involved in a morally fraught industry. You know, one of them noted that uh, I think the quote is the quote is right here. I wrote it down. Yes, I know it is a bad products to person, but I still sell it. So sometimes I feel guilt. NPS is not forbidden in China so we can sell. I sell it because I want earn money, earn a living.
1: Yeah, you know, and um, that was actually one of the more nuanced responses I got. Right. When I talked to the CEO, he was basically like, well, it's legal in China, so it's fine for me to sell.
0: Right right and then and then you know once you do there's a common theme with your visit to china which is that when they start to trust you a little bit more whether it's the ceo or sales representatives they'll just freely admit certain things like julie at the shenzhen branch will just say to be honest it's not gmp which is good manufacturing practices once you just press a little further
1: yeah i mean when you go to the websites of these companies They look fairly legit, you know, they have a lot of this like kind of uh, stock photography of these gleaming labs and these, you know, huge facilities and they say they make 10,000 different chemicals to order and things like that. But, you know, it's all sort of a game of smoking smoke and mirrors. And a lot of these chemical companies don't actually synthesize the chemicals themselves. They're just distributors and this this company i visited in wuhan um is called
0: this is, this is yuan cheng i think yes. yeah
1: exactly yuan cheng the one with the hundreds of salespeople they actually have like 30 different shell companies and they're based all over the country i had to really i had to draw up one of those flow charts you know like you see in mafia movies where the detectives have the the top guy in the picture with the strings coming down and, um, you know, <laughs> yeah. they went to great lengths to sort of cover their tracks.
0: I, I want to know the, the, the feelings that you experienced that you talk about, you talk a little bit about it in the book about, uh, you know, you, you, you have a translator there with you. You can't exactly read Chinese. You're in a car. You have no idea where you're going. Uh, I, I want to hear about the, the actual on the ground experience of, of infiltrating these, these two companies.
1: Right. So this other company was based in Shanghai, and it is called uh, ChemSky. And I corresponded with the owner of this lab over the Internet, over Skype, and he seemed really knowledgeable. He didn't seem like some sort of, um, you know, fly-by-night salesman who was trying to hustle me. Um, And what his company specialized in is just purely NPS. So fentanyl analogs, types of fentanyl, and types of synthetic cannabinoids. So are you guys familiar with K2 and Spice? Yes. Yeah, so they call them, you know, synthetic cannabis sometimes or synthetic marijuana, but it's not really like traditional marijuana that makes you chilled out. These are these drugs make your heart beat fast. They make people pass out and overdose and die. And so... This, this company, ChemSky, was making these drugs in huge quantities, so I wanted to visit. And when I got to Shanghai, he, he met me at the train station. This, this chemist, his name is Dawson Lee. And then he invited me to his apartment, which was on the top floor, like the penthouse of this fancy Shanghai uh, gated community. And, you know, he, he sort of had his doubts about me. He kept asking me if I was a journalist and I said, "No, I'm, you know, a, a drug dealer." I, I actually said that I was scouting the lab for a friend who was a drug dealer, and so he he wasn't quite sure if my story added up. But eventually, we had lunch. I won him over, and so he called his driver to come take us to the lab. And so that's when I really started getting nervous because this uh, this driver was like this big, beefy dude who didn't speak any English and. I, I wondered if this guy was maybe the muscle of the operation or something like that so so but anyway I got in the car and and yeah I don't speak Chinese my my GPS was like not helpful I I had this translator who you know um, I was in touch with so I was sending her text messages but I didn't really know where we were going you know we were just flying down the highway and um, eventually we got to the facility and it really um Looked like a suburb, just a bland suburban office park. You know, it had been recently built. It was maybe three stories high. There was a fountain out front. You know, there was like a parking lot where one of those mechanical arms let you in and everything. And then we went up to the lab itself, which was um, there were there were like five or six different smaller labs on this one floor, and in different rooms they were synthesizing these different types of fentanyl and or these different types of synthetic cannabinoids. And the, the scope was was very surprising because they only had about five or six employees. But the amount, the quantities they were making were huge. Like they told me that um, one sort of orange custard looking mixture was a, a fentanyl analog. They said it was about one kilo You know, and from that you could get presumably millions of doses Um, and this synthetic cannabinoids. They had them bagged up in one kilo bags, you know, like whole drums full of these bags. And and they were drying out on the tables, these sort of black lab tables that you see in any high school chemistry class. and the the amount was just shocking and they said they were sending them to russia and to europe and all these different places and um you know it, people asked me if it was like dirty and dangerous and run down it it was fairly clean you know the the smell was really strong and and Dowson Lee the chemist had his shirt pulled up over his nose and i was like well shouldn't we be wearing you know respirator or something but um but it didn't seem unprofessional for the most part. Right. I think a lot of these
0: operations, even if they don't necessarily abide by uh, good manufacturing practices, are often just good enough or good enough for the people to still be working there and it to be a viable commercial operation. And and it seems based on a lot of the reviews uh, you see, whether it's on the dark web or elsewhere, that in fact, you know, these, these chemicals themselves are at, at least... Uh, to the dealers who then may themselves adulterate them further, the original chemicals are actually quite pure.
1: Yeah. They even send, you know, a certificate of purity that says, you know, obviously they can probably say whatever they want, but that that, you know, 95% pure or whatever. But I've talked to people, sort of fentanyl nerds on places like Reddit, and they say that no, these these chemicals they receive directly from China. Tend really to be quality, you know, well made, high purity, and um, you know they they come right through the mail, and so they send them through FedEx, the U.S. Postal Service, UPS. It's it's kind of shocking um, that they come in this way.
0: It's interesting to note too that that because fentanyl is is potent, you don't need very much of it, and essentially the U.S. produces all the fentanyl it needs domestically, so you know, whether it's it's analogs or precursors or fentanyl itself, I can't kind of almost by definition, anything imported from China is a bit suspect.
1: That's 100% right. Um, there, there is something of a problem of a misappropriation of medical fentanyl. And so I don't know if we mentioned that fentanyl is still a very important hospital drug and for pain management, you know, women in epidurals get fentanyl. Um, men before they have a colonoscopy will get fentanyl. And there are a lot of reports of anesthesiologists and doctors and nurses sort of stealing fentanyl. And I even heard one report that like a huge percentage of what they think is fentanyl in hospitals has actually been replaced by saline or something like that. So so that's that's a problem. But what, what we mostly hear about when we hear about people dying from fentanyl is this illicitly made fentanyl that comes from China
0: right right uh, and I think this uh, recent collaboration between between China and the us is interesting because it, it kind of shows the difficulties of even domestically in China if there's if there's will to regulate regulating a complex system is incredibly difficult Um especially because you know as you noted there's a general drive for for exports and there are VAT rebates to encourage that and then there's also incentives on the provincial level to uh, perhaps move up in the party hierarchy if your province is doing well and of course you know that's the district you're in charge of so if you know of course you want you want employment you want as much employment and and production as you can you can possibly get so often i think it's a matter of Uh, particular scapegoats that end up getting caught in this, how much media attention there is, because I believe that they will start to to crack down on it in in China. Uh, But because there's also a difficulty with uh, coordination within China's FDA as well, it's not exactly clear how long it's going to take for them to get it under control, even if there is the the full 100% will to do it.
1: Yeah. China took an important step in May when they banned all fentanyl analogs. So this was a kind of a blanket ban like the one we have in the U.S. And there's reason to think that this will be effective because whenever China bans a particular drug, you know, when they do it one by one, the seizures of that drug in the U.S. drop. So there's a very, you know, it's very correlated. So this, this could have some effect. But but oh sorry uh uh, one more thing i was just going to say was that if we do sort of crack down on China, even if china does comply the industry could just move to india because india is already starting to make a lot of fentanyl
2: right so i i'm curious like it sounds like china is maybe more effective at the drug enforcement than the united states is like you know they can ban you know whole classes of of drugs in a way like like sort of it sounded like how the thing how the problems being driven in the u.s is like the regulators aren't agile enough to keep up with all the new chemicals that are coming well, out
1: the u.s actually can too we have this thing called the analog act which allows okay, us cool. to, to do that too so yeah
2: okay yeah no i'm just curious so like like contrasting or comparing the the drug enforcement regime in china to the united states like why you know, are there people getting wrecked by this stuff as well, the same way Americans are, or like, and if not, why not? Uh, no, how do they uh, solve the problem? How do they approach the problem?
1: Yeah, well, if you want to play a fun game, um, Wolf, since you haven't read the book, try to guess the um, the most popular drugs of abuse in China.
2: I have no clue. I, it could, try, come on. All right. come on. I mean, uh, <laughs> let me think about that. I mean, probably alcohol, but uh...
1: they're not including alcohol (laughs) per
2: se, just like Uh,
1: traditional traditional drugs, cocaine, you you would think and you would think marijuana, right? Because marijuana is by far the most used drug in the U.S. and Europe, but neither cocaine nor marijuana really register in China. The the most popular drugs of abuse are uh, heroin, meth and ketamine. So. You know, you were you were kind of destined to fail with that question, but I. Yeah, yeah, it's just so so strange. (laughs) No, it's going to be so different. But so and so fentanyl doesn't kill people really much at all in China. China does not have a fentanyl problem with its own citizens, and so that's why a lot of people think that China doesn't crack down on fentanyl production. You know, China. when I spent time there, I talked to a lot of people about how to sort of Chinese law enforcement works. And what I kept hearing over and over was that it doesn't always matter so much even what laws are on the books. It's sort of like what priorities the government has. And so when they decide that, say, meth is a bad scourge in China, they will dedicate huge resources to cracking down on the production and the sale of meth. And Mm so... For, for whatever reason, that China has not decided thus far to take that same approach with fentanyl. Yeah, and, and
0: you know, from their perspective, uh, you know, China has scheduled more drugs than even even the United Nations has, including analogs. So, uh, you know, as the deputy chief of, of China's National Narcotics Control Commission said, why should it be blamed at all, especially because a lot of the research for this, in the first place, is originating in in Western countries, and and it's a supply and and from their perspective, it's uh it's a demand side problem.
1: Yeah, and it that's a really good point. I mean, obviously, the opioid epidemic kicked off in the U.S. through the overprescription of oxycontin and and all that kind of stuff. And as we know from these right, lawsuits, the whole, the whole Sack, Sackler family. Yeah, thing. exactly. And we're in the midst of all these lawsuits against the pharmaceutical companies, like. Purdue Pharma, who was run by the Sackler family, like you mentioned, and makes OxyContin. In St. Louis, actually, you know, Purdue Pharma always gets the blame, but there's a company in St. Louis called Mallinckrodt Pharmaceuticals, which made more opioid pills at the height of the crisis than any other company. And it wasn't even close. They made something like 29 billion pills were distributed.
2: Wow. Wow. Yeah, so this this brings us back. Like, I, I am curious, sort of, on that demand side. Like, what's the sociology of the whole problem? Like, what is it about American society, or what is it that's that's actually happening that that's causing, you know, so many people to be getting into abuse of this stuff? Like, is it is it coming from the sort of overprescription of opioids? Is it coming from like just people in stuck in kind of like? Did, degenerating subcultures or or just like despair or what like what's actually driving the demand where's where is the new demand coming from how do people get into it
1: people point to you know people who study this tend to point to two things in particular one is something called the jix porter letter it was a, a one paragraph letter written to the new england journal of medicine i believe in the 80s um, written by a doctor and his research assistant who conducted sort of an informal survey of people at their hospital who were prescribed opioid narcotics. So these right. were all inpatients who received opioids and, and by their reckoning, almost none of them became addicted. So okay. so like I said, this was not a formal peer reviewed study. This This was just a one paragraph letter but this letter was sort of seized upon by all of these different interests, all these other people who are doing studies, the, the pharmaceutical industry itself, and over and over and over again was cited as proof that hey, we were wrong. Opioids aren't addictive, you know. Um, and so. Pre- oh, interesting.
2: So it was it was treated as like an authoritative study, but it was just a, an informal survey.
1: Yeah. Exactly. And so previously, doctors had been loath to pre- prescribe opioids, especially these sort of high potency ones like Oxycontin. But then right. the second sort of sea change in the culture uh, was when the, there was a decision made to, to start recognizing pain as what's known as the fifth vital sign. And so, you know, like your, like your pulse rate... Uh, you're, you know, your breathing, things like that, things are that are essential to one's health. And there was a movement to to recognize pain as a vital sign. And so that you may have, you know, remember, like, this. That, that,
2: like you're alive, if you're experiencing pain, or that you should just be experiencing like pain,
1: or just like it's, it's the intrinsically one of the very most important things a doctor should be aware of when caring for a patient. Oh, okay, so it's just like
2: one of the most important factors that the doctor should be managing.
1: Yeah, exactly. Okay. And so you may have experienced this yourself when you go to the hospital and the doctor says, how would you characterize your pain on a scale from one to 10, right? And so I remember being asked this question and I was like, oh, uh, I don't know. <laughs> like, how do you how do you answer that question? I was like, I don't know, a seven, an eight. And um, around this time, Uh, This was in the 90s. Um, Doctors began being instructed that if someone's pain level was, say, an eight, that meant that they should receive opioid prescription pills. And the idea was to take people's pain seriously, and it was based out of a really a humanitarian desire, was not to leave people like you know in pain. And so, combined with this new belief from this letter that opioids were not addictive. It was kind of this perfect storm, and these uh, prescriptions just started going through the roof.
2: Okay, so so they prescribed, so they got this idea that that the doctors really need to be managing pain in a more aggressive way, and then they got the idea that the opioids are are safe. You know, if you prescribe them to people, um, you know, they they won't get addicted, and so that that kind of led to. Uh, the, the the sort of overgrowth of prescriptions, and I, I wonder whether there might have been kind of marketing pressures in there as well. Like like you know, they might be pointing to these things, but but are were there like PR firms or or sales people working for these companies who were like pushing this particular interpretation?
1: Yeah, one hundred percent. Purdue Pharma most famously did its own studies, its own internal research, and determined that. OxyContin was going to have, I think it was something like 13% of its users were going to suffer from addiction. Okay. And so, but they suppressed this information yeah. and the, the marketing for the pill all said something like, the odds are very low. You know, there's almost no chance that you'll get addicted. And um, and then also Johnson & Johnson Makes something called the uh, Duragesic patch. It's a fentanyl patch that's slow release, and it's for you know cancer patients and people with chronic pain, and they also way downplayed the potential
0: for addiction with the patch. That's interesting because when I went in once for a, a, a rush surgery that was unplanned, let's just say, uh, they asked me the same question: um, pain of one to ten. And in fact, I was given opioids as a result of that, and I've done a lot of uh, original research as well some years ago about opioid prescription in the Department of Veterans Affairs, and often what you find there is that, uh, yes, uh, it's certainly part of the regimen to consider levels of pain when prescribing, but one of the things you see consistently is, is that uh, these physicians uh prefer in many cases, or have preferred in many cases to prescribe opioids because simply it's it's easy, like it's easier for them. Um, and it's easier to take care of, of, of veterans that way. I mean there's a sense in which you could develop a, an entirely like holistic approach to helping a veteran manage their psychology, managing their pain, but that is so much more difficult than writing a script. Um, and so, you have a lot of these cases where, you know, a particular, you know, hospital is known as Candyland and, uh, you know, the doctor has, has, uh, the nickname, the candy man, because he'll write prescriptions for just about anything. Um, and so this has been going on in, in the last four or so years as, as well. And, and now finally they're starting to, to tighten this up a little bit, but of course, once you start tightening it up, you go into the other, uh, sometimes you fall into the other side of of, uh, the problem where now things are a little bit too controlled. And so when people uh, do experience pain and are looking for uh, opioids for legitimate reasons, it can sometimes be difficult for them to actually obtain them.
1: Right, that is a big problem now. And in places like Colorado, you have people who have been prescribed opioids for legitimate medical reasons for years and years. But all of a sudden, their doctor tells them that they can't receive their pills anymore unless they go to a, a class that recommends other types of pain relief. And, you know, people are literally having their p- pills taken from them. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's. I have mixed feelings about all this. Um, on the one hand, absolutely, for new patients, there are plenty of alternatives that can and should be considered. Everything from sort of less powerful, less addictive types of pills to things like yoga and ac- acupuncture and, and things like that. On the other hand, if someone already has been receiving these pills, studies have shown that when you take them away, when you take away someone's opioids, they're very likely to turn to street heroin. Right. And that, that happens a lot.
2: Right, because they actually, they actually do end up addicted to it.
1: Right. I've heard something like after six weeks of taking an opioid pain pill that it's no longer treating the problem anymore, you know, you might you might have just a brand new problem in, in the right. form you've, of addiction.
2: Yeah, you just you're creating treating a different problem, which is the addiction. <laughs> um, so so is this is this what like is driving ultimately the the huge increase in opioid deaths and addiction overall? Like, is it is it like you get a whole bunch of people into this stuff, addicted to it, that increases supply chains and and gets people you know like through these various mechanisms like you know they get their pills taken away or they switch to street heroin because it's cheaper. Like you get people doing those drugs and then you get people kind of sharing them with their friends. I, like, I, I'm still just really curious, like, you tell the story in, in the introduction of your book of that 18 year old kid, um, who, who somehow got into fentanyl and, and, and died, but like, that didn't sound like a a prescription story that sounded like kind of kids doing drugs together kind of story. And then you also hear about all these kind of, um, sort of like more well off people or people who like, sort of have, have their lives together and they're not just kids doing drugs, but they somehow still get into it. I'm curious, like how, how is it spreading beyond the, the just prescription or is it actually just like mostly prescription?
1: It, it spreads in a whole bunch of different ways, but the, the most common narrative is, is that the three waves of the opioid crisis. So the prescription pills was the first wave. Heroin right. was the second wave. Fentanyl is the third wave. And um, wh- you know, I also heard stories about people with chronic pain like AIDS sufferers, right. who are, are using fentanyl. Um, it's, uh, wasn't that show iRobot? What was he taking in that? Uh, maybe that was a a different opioid, but, but people are, um, you know, one of the dark, I talked with a dark web dealer. He actually met me in person, um, which I was very shocked that he was willing to do. And, but he was producing, uh, fentanyl nasal spray and he was buying the, you know, the powdered, powdered fentanyl from China. And then making, you know, in his own at-home lab or whatever, uh, these nasal sprays, and he put a he put a sticker on it so it looked exactly like something you would get at CVS or right. Walgreens. And he was a long-time opioid addicted user himself, and he actually claimed he was doing a form of harm reduction. And so, what his claim was that. You know, instead of making addicted users get their opioids from big pharma, you know, getting Purdue Purdue Pharma, enriching them, that this was a more affordable way for addicted users to maintain their habits. And so it's something like $60 for one of these nasal sprays he was he was selling. Mm -hmm. And he said you could get, you know, uh, a full month's use out of it or something like that. So everybody kind of has their own way in to the situation.
2: Right. Yeah. And so that's, that's, yeah. No. I'm, I'm like, this is ultimately like, if we're going to kind of tackle the issue as a society, you need to know what, what are all the factors driving it? Right. Like there's all, obviously there's the whole supply side, like people coming up with new drugs all the time, pushing them around, but the demand side, like what I, I'm, you, you must've talked to a lot of the people in this. Like I'm, I'm, just very curious about the psychology of the people who have who get into it by means other than the prescription.
1: Well, there people say that, um, you know, heroin is sort of the the drug people are after. You know, it's more soulful. I've, I've even heard people use huh. the phrase, whereas fentanyl is is much shorter acting. It's, yeah. um, you know, people don't tend to like it as much. And uh, but but the main the main benefit tends to be, I think Jonah was saying earlier, it's um, it gets you off gets sick, you, you know, and gets you high again. Exactly.
2: Yeah. So people are getting into heroin first and then and then uh, and then into fentanyl. No.
1: Right. And a lot of times, you know, without even wanting to or meaning to.
2: Right.
0: Now, if, if current projections are correct, uh, you know, if, if current trends are the, stay the same, um, I've seen a data point that, that, you know, opioid-related deaths are expected to increase 147% by 2025. And so I think that's probably a good note to, to end on, which is that this, this problem is, is likely not going to go away. And, and certainly the negotiations between uh, the U.S. And, and China will be reflective of the overall uh, reshaping of the geopolitical order and, and, and how much that uh, Trump and G are able to collaborate and come to a mutual understanding about what should be done with, with drug regulations and drug enforcement. Um, and so for people out there, uh, I'd, I'd encourage you all to think more about this problem. And, and in doing so, you should definitely buy this book. We only covered a, a small fraction of the content in there. Uh, it's, it's, it's really the book to buy in my opinion on, on this issue, especially over the last five years, so much has changed. Uh, and so in the, in the show description notes, we'll be sure to, to include a link to the book. And, uh, on that note, that's about a good time to, uh, close out the show. Ben, thanks so much for coming on.
1: Well, thanks for having me. This has been, this has been a great pleasure.
0: For everyone else. Uh, we'll see you next time.